So Money Episode 640, Jerry Kolber, co-founder of Atomic Entertainment. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Do you like watching television? Ever wonder who are the minds behind these shows? Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. I have a fun topic for all of us today and a personal topic. A friend and former colleague, Jerry Kolber, is on the show. He is the co-founder and executive producer of Atomic Entertainment Group, and he has been the mastermind behind a number of popular shows you may have watched. His company has produced hit shows like National Geographic's Brain Games. He's also worked on Bravo's Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And Jerry has also been an executive producer on one of my shows back in the day called Bank of Mom and Dad. It's a little show back in 2009. Anyone watch it? Raise your hand. Yes, please. It was fun to catch up with Jerry. We talk about how to make great TV today. Where does TV live? It's not just on TV. We have now lots of screens. And so how do you think as a producer about the kinds of shows that can exist and be successful on platforms like Netflix, maybe even Facebook? Jerry's got shows on all of those channels. And how did he get his start? What brought him to this world? And where does he see the future of television heading? All this and more coming up. Stay tuned. Here is Jerry Kolber. Jerry Kolber, welcome to So Money, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Whatever made you come on this show? I mean, you don't do a lot of podcast interviews. You don't do a lot of interviews, but you you said okay to me. I'm very honored. (laughs) <laughs> well, um, the reason I don't do a lot of interviews is because uh, as, a, as a producer and creator of shows uh, for, for TV and you know, online, I really prefer for the, the talent in those shows or the subject matter to really be front and center. But um, you and I made a show together a few years ago and have kept in touch, and I love the way you think about things, and I love what you're doing. And so when you asked me to do this, I couldn't really say no. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And likewise, I love the way your brain works. I loved working with you. And and for our audience who may not be super familiar with your work, uh, Jerry is well, the co-founder of Atomic Entertainment. And you've worked on everything from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, which I loved that show, to um, the Emmy-nominated Brain Games, which ran on National Geographic for many seasons. And I believe now he's in, is even on Netflix. And everything in between... I think that television is extremely difficult to be someone who is whose responsibility and job is to come up with exciting ideas that stick. You know, I myself have done a number of shows, but, you know, you're lucky if you even get past the pilot. You're super lucky if you get to a season. You're gold if you can get two seasons or more. What has given you stamina in this industry, Jerry? You've been you've been at it for a while. So tell us what keeps you going. Well, the main thing that keeps me going is I really see creating media as an opportunity to help people discover something that they didn't necessarily know before or, or you know, get them curious to, to discover more about something about their world or, or themselves that they didn't know. And that's, that's exciting to me. So if I wasn't 
if media and TV and online didn't exist, I would probably be a teacher or a writer or something like that. So it's not so much the the actual form that drives me, but the content. And um, what keeps me going is just knowing that you know I'm I'm constantly uh, grateful for the opportunity to work with partners and broadcasters that that let us make these slightly uh, <laughs> slightly different <laughs> kinds of, of shows that. Um, that people seem to actually enjoy when they get out there. So yeah, that's, that's it. I can totally see you as being like Professor Jerry. I, I think that's uh, maybe <laughs> in another life. Uh, you know, you started in reality TV years and years ago when it was a completely different beast. And of course, still today we have the junk reality shows, but we also have uh, a lot of interesting behind the scenes educational programming that's sort of like f- infotainment. What, what do you see as being the future of reality TV? You were, we were talking the other day about how you're selling shows to mediums that are not necessarily traditional, Facebook, iTunes. These are the new players in the, I guess, uh, you know, I guess broadcast. What do you call it? What's the category even? I don't know. (laughs) I don't think anyone's figured that out. I mean, it's just content. I mean, there's so many ways to to deliver content and to consume content now that I, I don't think, I don't think we have come up with one word for it all. So Maybe we should invent one right now. We'll do it. Okay. Well, we're, I know we're going to work together one day soon. And, and you know, working on Bank of Mom and Dad with you, it was sort of my first hosting uh, experience where not only was I hosting, but I was going into people's homes and uh, just trying to get them to think differently about money. And I remember like, maybe you maybe you were there. I had a, a, a someone who trained me before we went live or before we started recording to help me. I mean, ultimately, they were like, if you can make these people cry, this show will get nominated for an Emmy. <laughs> so my, my job was to try to get people to cry, which I'm sad to admit, but that was kind of, when that happened, you were like, in your mind, you were like, let's keep rolling. This is the good stuff. If it bleeds, it leads. Uh, yeah. What's your approach to, to television to make it entertaining? And you've had so much success. You, at this point, you probably know you have a good kind of, you know, radar or litmus test for what will be accepted and, and, and sold ultimately. And so what's a good recipe for a good TV show? Well, you know, I think Bank of Mom and Dad is sure that, that we did together is a good example because on paper saying, hey, we're going to do a show, a TV show where we help young women uh, overcome personal finance problems does not sound like a fun show, right? I mean, that sounds more like a segment of something or, or a book. But what really made that work was um, the showrunner, Bob Kirsch, who I was working for on that, it really, he made it very clear and, and uh, upfront that the only way that show was going to work is if there was an emotional uh, component to it, that there had to be uh, a, a deeper dive than just the money. And then you, you came in and were able to do that with all of these young women and figure out not just what the financial problems were, but what was underlying those. And so I thought that was a really kind of brilliant uh, observation by Bob at the beginning, and I thought you really brilliantly uh, did it. And so for me, that's what made that show work, was coming at the subject not from the non-obvious angle. Uh, we didn't come at it from the side of the balance sheet. We came at it from the side of what are the emotional issues underlying all of these horrible financial problems. Right. So in my mind, you know, the recipe for a great unscripted show, uh, for, for the kind of shows I like to make and, and watch, is 
to figure out a really interesting way into a subject that doesn't sound necessarily like fun television. So, for example, with, with Brain Games, you know, National Geographic wanted a, uh, a new kind of show about neuroscience and the human brain. And so, you know, the, those of us that created that show got together and thought about what's the best way to do that? And it really came up this, this interesting idea of, of games and having people play games with the show while they're watching. Uh, and, and the games would help reveal something unusual or surprising about how their brain worked. And so that was just something nobody had really done before. And, um, you know, that show ended up doing very well. Even though it was a show about neuroscience, people loved it. It was entertaining and fun. For me, the, the recipe for a, a great show is, is figuring out a really fun, cool way into a subject that typically might not be considered that much fun. That said, there are many forces at play when you are producing a television show. There's, you want to have the good idea, the great team, the great execution, but then there's ratings and the network and, and sometimes a great show doesn't get renewed or doesn't go to market just because of, for, for myriad reasons, right? There's like any number of reasons. And so my question is, as somebody whose job it is to basically run a company that, um, you know, your source of income is, is, is basically content, selling content and making sure that it, you know, hoping that it is successful. How do you build a portfolio that, had that sort of is diverse enough that, you know, you can afford to have one show that you work so hard on, not really go so far. And then others like brain games really go to the moon. How do you manage your, the business? Well, you know, first of all, we have a, a very, very fine filter for how we develop shows here. And it's, it's, we're finding it's, um, uh, Really, everyone has to be very excited about the idea and then also understand uh, the mechanics of how an idea could work before we'll go out and pitch it. So, you know, there are companies that don't necessarily make the kind of shows we make that make more of the kind of traditional docu-series reality uh, kind of stuff where you can go out with a tape of some good talent and a funny situation and sell a show based on that. But the kind of shows we're doing here... Um, we really, really kick the tires on them because we're taking science concepts, educational concepts, and figuring out how to make them fun and different and interesting. Um, so there's just a very long, uh, thorough development process here, which is why we have a, a pretty good track record of when we take something out to sell it, 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 usually, it usually sells somewhere. Um, and then on the, on the flip side, because we've got such a strong brand and our, our brand is so clearly, uh, you know, the, the sort of fun, smart, cool uh, projects, we're finding that now other companies are coming to us, branded companies um, and, and other partners with really cool projects that they want us to help them make. So, you know, there's both the stuff that we're developing and taking out there. And then we're also finding some, some really wonderful partnerships from people coming to us because of the right. work they've seen us do. That's taken, obviously, some time uh, to build, but that's a, an interesting and, and really fun, uh, fun new development for us. I can imagine it's a hard balance, though, because if someone's coming to you with a project, they've already got the budget, they want you to do it, that's low-hanging fruit. Like, we'll do that. And then how do you then dedicate more, even as much time to coming up with your own ideas? I think you're doing it. It's, it's probably not as easy as it sounds, though. No, it's not. I mean, that is always the, the, the challenge is when, when, whether we take a project on that someone brings to us or whether it's something we develop, we give a thousand percent to it. It doesn't matter to us where it came from. We, we really pride ourselves on, you know, 
making $50,000 look like $500,000. Like that's what we do here. And we give every project the same amount of attention. So it is a balancing act. And um, uh, we have great people that we work with here. Uh, Adam Davis, my, my producing partner and partner in the company and I, we make sure to find time every week where we're just, you know, closed door talking about new ideas, pushing them forward. And then we have, uh, you know, to be honest, we have a great agents at WME that, that help us uh, really manage this process and, and really act as cheerleaders and, and frontline, uh, you know, salespeople and, and, and marketers for us in a way. Um, so it's, it's a combination of all of those things that really makes it work for us. What was your first job, Jerry, in this field? My very first job was working. I was a production accountant. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm starting, like, what was my first job? I was uh, an assistant production accountant on a Dick Wolf show called New York Undercover. That was an urban cop drama on Fox back in the mid '90s. <laughs> and that's when you got the bug. Um. You know, it's funny. I, I actually was working in theater before that, and and the bug that I got from being a assistant production accountant was that my paycheck was triple what it had been the week before when I was working in theater. And uh, I was like, oh, wow. So you followed the money. <laughs> but I always knew I wanted to produce and, and um, be the creative exec. So, you know, I, I worked my way up from the, from the money side, which was, which was great because television is this very unique and strange manufacturing process. And so, to have spent, you know, the, the decade that I did on, on shows like New York Undercover, and I was the, one of the uh, production accountants on Sex in the City's first season, and, and a bunch of shows like that, I really got a, an education in how money is spent and how it relates to the creative, and also got to read all of the scripts and ask a million questions and run around and and probably that was probably very annoying to people because they're like, why is the why is the accountant coming and sitting in an editing session? You know. <laughs> but, <laughs> and uh, I imagine you probably got some good behind the scenes gossip. Yeah, I'm not going to share any of that. Oh sure. man, <laughs> that's okay. Well, I want to ask you some money questions, obviously, uh, but I also want to find another question. I want to ask before we get to that is. Tell us what's coming up on your docket. What's, what are some new shows that we can see uh, produced by the very Jerry Colber? Sure. Well, our team here at Atomic just made a really cool show called GE in the Wild, which is on YouTube. You just search for GE in the Wild. And it stars uh, Ali Ward from Innovation Nation and Adam Savage from Mythbusters going around to uh, places that we would never get access to if we weren't working directly with GE, really incredible uh, factories, um, laboratories all over the world, and, and really highlighting some of the incredible uh, innovations in science that are happening right now. And it's a really fun, short-form show that we love because it's, uh, it, it really gets people thinking about science and, and engineering in a way they may not have, and it's, uh, it's been doing very well, and that's out right now. And then uh, we have a, a Netflix project coming up um, that I can tell you is a very, very cool, uh, broad educational series for, for tweens, like 9 to 12. Um, we, we're considering it basically like if you've aged out of Sesame Street, there, there really isn't any fun shows for the curious kid for four, for four or five years. And so we've created this really fun format and um, starting production on that actually right now. 
You're right. There really isn't a lot of fun educational programming for kids that age. So that's a smart move. Yeah. And it's just, you know, we, we know that kids are so curious and they're, 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 they're sort of getting inundated by, um, you know, kind of like the teaching to the test problem. And they, they have so many questions that aren't necessarily getting answered that when I was a kid, there was just more time to play and be curious. And now I, every kid I know has you know, I swear they work more hours than I do between school and homework and all the things they do after school. So we're like, all right, well, we know they're watching TV or Netflix, you know, anyways, let's, let's create something that's fun that also gives them a little, you know, a little excitement about a, a topic that they didn't know about or helps them figure out something that they were curious about. So that's, that's the nature of the show. Brilliant. Jerry, what's your money mantra? Let's talk about your financial mindset. Um, you know, for a long time, I, because I, I freelanced sort of, I mean, I guess, you know, I guess that's what you would call it. Like I was always going from TV show to TV show and I didn't understand, um, really for a long time that you had to, you know, if you were working 40 weeks a year, you had to take whatever money you made those 40 weeks and actually divide it by 52 weeks. (laughs) And so... So I was always finding myself early in my career sort of hitting a wall, and it was like later that I realized, all right, you have to think long, longer term. I mean, the two things that, I, that really changed things for me was, uh, was thinking about um, like giving a little bit of money away every time, every paycheck, uh, just expressing some gratitude by giving whatever, three, four, five percent of that away. And then also taking another four or five percent and putting it aside into an in, into something, whether you want to call it a an emergency fund or long term savings. Just starting there for me was was a big change, and um, you know, sort of not feeling like you have to spend every dollar that comes in uh, was was a big change for me. And uh, and then from there, just building up into you know basically all the stuff that you taught me when we worked together. <laughs> But I haven't ever heard of anyone saying immediately when I make money, I give away a a fraction of it. I think that's really uh, not only just nice, but I think like you said, it can allow you to then go on and do your other money management with more consciousness and clarity and feeling good, right? That you've done the, you've done the important things first and now you can, you can have a little more fun with your money and not feel maybe bad or guilty. And I got that idea from, um, I don't know if she was explicit about it in the book, but I think I read it somewhere, but there was a, a woman named Lynn Twist who wrote a book called The Soul of Money that I thought was, was one of the, uh, other than other than the Farnoosh Chirabi collection, I thought that's uh, one of the best books on money I've ever read. The Soul of Money. Why have I never heard of oh, this book? Oh, you I'm going to, I'm going to order it on Amazon. You will love uh, it. As soon as we get off uh, she does a lot of like not-for-profit work, which really talks about money in terms of, um, you know, we, it's so easy to think of money as like cash to spend or, or credit to spend, but she really drives home the point that all money is is a, is a, is a form of stored energy. You know, it's like you, you did some work, you can't trade the work you did for, you know, chickens or, you know, broccoli or whatever you need to eat. So you have to store that energy somewhere. And so the money is a form of stored energy. And so rather than, you know, hoarding it or thinking of it in, in, a, in a very tight way, she talks about how energy moves through money and how money moves through energy. It's, I'm making it sound a little more woo-woo, but I'm... No, I get it. Yeah, yeah we talk a lot about, you know, the 
the yeah. importance of thinking of money as this abundance, this abundant thing, as opposed to us, you know, something that is scarce. I think. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that was so interesting to me was like starting to read about microfinance and particularly with like um, female entrepreneurs in developing countries and realizing like there's these, these women who, if they only had, you know, a few hundred dollars could literally start a business that they can then use to sell products to Western countries. And I, I'm not thinking of the name of the, the guy who, um, what's the name of the man who, there was a guy who really pushed this a few years ago and, um, and you're like, Oh my God, like just a little bit of money can make such a huge difference in someone else's life. So when you start to think of it that way, it's, um, it just opens up possibilities about what money is, is, is for and what you can do with it. the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, they use real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your house. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, carbon monoxide poisoning, and it's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set it up yourself with no tools needed, or they can do it for you, and it's only 50 cents a day with no contracts. Visit simplysafe.com slash so money. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. Be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash so money so they know our show sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash so money. Right. We don't have all the same, all the same markups that exist in the U.S. do not exist elsewhere. So, you know, your money can go very far in developing countries. And the book is called The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money by Lynn Twist. If anyone wants to look that up, I'm definitely going to start reading that. Thanks for and, that, uh, Rec. And I looked up here was Kiva, K-I-V, like Victor A. Yes. And it was, uh, it was uh, inspired by uh, Dr. Muhammad Yunus. Who had started yes. making loans to women in Bangladesh to make furniture. So um, really, you know, look, I, there's so many people that need help with money right now with all of the, I know, uh, where do you begin that are going on, but, and, and that, that's a great place to help right now. But long-term, I think things like this are, are wonderful that, you know, where a little bit of money can have a huge amount of leverage for someone. That's, that's something that I, um, that's very interesting to me. I'm curious how you got interested in money. I mean, the fact that you even read The Soul of Money on your own as a way to in- in educate yourself, I think is very telling. Is there a story behind how you became interested in financial well-being as a, as a child? Um, well, my, my father was a CPA growing up. And so I was, there was always like talk around money in the house. And, um, I don't know if there was one specific thing that got me interested in it. I, I read The Soul of Money when I, I was part of a, a – I studied meditation at a, a group called the Interdependence Project here in, in uh, New York, and I was asked to be on the board. And somehow through thinking about my role on the board and fundraising, I found my way to The Soul of Money. So I know that's, that's how I found that book. Um, but uh, no, I don't, I don't think there was any one specific thing that, that – that led me to be interested in it. Um, I mean, look, honestly, like doing Bank of Mom and Dad with you exposed me 
to a lot more <laughs> concepts around money than I than I'd known before. Um, so what was the thing you learned most? I mean, the thing I learned most from that show was that money is not black and white. There are so many emotional undercurrents. And while someone may, you may think someone's problem is just debt. It's actually maybe their, their relationship with their parents or their themselves that's leading them to take it out, you know, take out their emotions by misusing their money. Um, that was a big takeaway for me. And it led to a book that I wrote called Psych Yourself Rich, all about the psychology of money. What was your biggest takeaway? The thing that I saw over and over in every episode we shot was that money was, was being used um, to create a sense of self that you really can't create with money, you know? that every, every single one of these young women that we were talking to had either spent too much money on some sort of vacations or was always spending money on clothes or spending money in some way to impress people rather than uh, living within their means. And none of it was working out for them. The, the overspending was not working for any of them. And so ultimately I kept seeing like, it, it seemed like they were using money to inflate themselves because they were uncomfortable with something about the reality of themselves. And I thought that you were great at really peeling away those layers and saying like, okay, you know, you're, what's really at the, at the core of this, this money problem. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's like yourself rich, obviously that's literally what that book is about is, is getting past the, the finance part of it and into the, the emotion part of it. I think that that's so true because what I found perhaps as the common denominator with a lot of those women, and I think it would be true if we had even some men in the mix, but that there were, there was some aspect of their life outside of money that they didn't really have a lot of control over, or it was like getting out of hand, or it was a relationship that had gone awry, or it was like you mentioned, like something that they were upset about within themselves that they felt they couldn't change. They couldn't get a handle on it. And I think that has a domino effect in other facets of your life, including your finances. So, you know, sometimes when you want to kind of clean up your money, you got to first clean up the other areas of your life that might be at the root of it. So, man, why isn't that show still on the air? It was on the wrong channel. It was on the wrong channel. If anyone out there <laughs> runs a network or a, like any streaming why. platform. Like yeah, if the that show was on, had been on Netflix or even on like Lifetime or Oxygen, uh, we, we would have done four or five seasons. I mean, you were, you were fantastic on it. Um, Bob Kirsch was doing an amazing job keeping, you know, keeping the show fun and emotional. Uh, I was having a blast working with both of you and, you know, I don't, uh, I, I really think it was just on the wrong channel. Yeah. Wrong place. I mean, it was not the wrong that, time. The channel, channel went off the air. Like, yeah, it literally yeah. like went bye bye. <laughs> so I don't take it personally. Jerry, what's a habit that you practice, a financial habit that helps you keep your money where you want it to be and growing and feeling financially healthy? Um, that's, that's easy. I just, I keep a little account that I don't ever touch, which is like basically enough money for like a month. <laughs> and I just know it's there. I rarely touch it. Uh, certainly haven't touched it in, in recent times, but, uh, just knowing that it's there, that if the, you know, proverbial crap hit the fan, I could 
be fine until I figure things out over the course of, you know, four or five or six weeks. Um, just gives me a lot of uh, financial peace of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it lo- I mean, your career, I would imagine there's a high level of risk taking, although you guys have managed risk really well. But, you know, there are some things that are not in- within your control sometimes. And just knowing that that's there, I'm sure, allows you to be braver, right? Yeah. And bolder in your decisions. It's funny because like at this point, it's not an issue. Like we're not, there's. Yes. You're not paycheck to paycheck. I get the sense. No, but yeah, that was from a time in my life when I was and a time when it took me, you know, right now I could just easily cover a month. But, you know, at that at the time I started doing that, it actually was, you know, something I built up over time. But there is something still like psychologically like. Yeah, I get it. But no, I mean, this, you know, it's funny because we're at the point now where the, the company is doing, doing very well. And, you know, it's, um, the, it's, it's more about the choices we make and the projects we want to do than it is about being concerned about, you know, keeping the lights on. So um, I probably am due to have a conversation with someone about the next phase of my financial life, Farnoosh, if you, uh, you have any If I know anyone. <laughs> hey, just listen to this podcast. We have so many great certified financial professionals and um, money experts on the show. Uh, I, but I can definitely give you a good list if you're interested. But I would also say go to xyplanningnetwork.com. They can lead you to finding somebody who is within budget, who also maybe has expertise in working with people specifically in your field too. So they have knowledge as far as like, you know, the the cyclicality of your industry or like the tax breaks, things like that. Um, but check it out. And because, you know, the, t- the traditional CFP, as we know, and have been accustomed to, like they take a percentage of your underlying assets and for a lot of people who like you are entrepreneurs or younger who don't really like that model uh, or that model doesn't really make sense for them. XY planning is a collection of financial planners, like a network that are a lot more flexible. They're more open-minded. They work within your framework or they try to. And so it's a little easier to find somebody that is a good fit, I think. Um, So for you and anyone listening, check out XY Planning. Uh, all right. One, you're, speaking of success, this is a question I ask all of my listeners, and I'd be curious to hear your take. What is a time in your life where you felt like all the financial stars aligned, also known as your so money moment? <laughs> uh, right now, this, this moment. This moment. <laughs> Sorry. I was like waiting for the rest. I'm like, this moment... Oh, low. With, I mean, right. Yeah. So I would okay. say <laughs> like right now talking to me. <laughs> Thank you. Exact moment. No, um, this general, this, this year I would say has been great in terms of, um, a really nice confluence of, uh, money working and the creative side of things working out. Um, you know, we, we started this company really, you know, completely on its, as its own outside shingle, probably four years ago now. And the first few years were not easy. You know, you really are kind of going from, from project to project. And it's, um, you, you have to kind of just keep an eye on, you know, knowing that if you keep building that foundation, eventually you will have a good, stable foundation. And it's really just the past, I'd say, 12 to 18 months where 
um, it's like, okay, this is totally working. Like we are managing risk well, we have wonderful partners, we have great projects in the pipeline, great stuff that we're developing, and the money's working well, and we're making great product, and our partners are very happy with what, uh, what we're making. So I'd say the last year has been the first time that I really felt like everything is just, you know, really dialed in. That's great. You work hard, Jerry, and you deserve it. And I remember you saying a quote on another podcast, the only other podcast perhaps that you've been on. So uh, it's called the Unmistakable Media Podcast or yeah. Unmistakable Creative. Srinivas Rao's podcast, the Unmistakable Creative, which is... I'm going to be that. on there soon. It was a good. Would you have a good time? He's, he's great. And he gets the best guest. I was like, I'm like, I'm like the, the least important guest you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, I doubt that. No, he's he's, gonna be, he's we, great. I love that podcast. The Unmistakable Creative is, is really nice. And I did that because I like the way he, he asks questions and the way he thinks. So Yes, he and I are going to swap podcasts. Um, like he's going to be on mine. I'm going to be on his. Um, I'm looking forward to that. But on that show, you told him that the nature of the universe is honest and good work gets recognized. And that's nice to hear because sometimes you feel like everything, the universe is not <laughs> going well. Um, good work does not always get recognized. Nice guys and gals don't finish last, let alone first. Um, so it's always nice to, to hear and see through your experience that that is not true. You're a Buddhist, Jerry. I don't know if we buried, we kind of buried the lead here. I think that's really uh, fascinating. So just a related question to that how has Buddhism shaped your view on money or what does Buddhism teach about money? I'm curious. I mean, all religions kind of have their own money stories, right? What's the Buddhist money story? Well, that in two minutes, in two minutes <laughs> for another day. Right. Um, and, and to be honest, I feel like, you know, I've been studying Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy now for almost a decade, but I still don't feel totally qualified to answer that question. Um, I can tell you that, Buddhism at its core is about noticing what's happening in the in this exact moment. And when you do that, you, you can't be anything but compassionate and open. And that doesn't mean uh, that you're, you know, easy prey or, you know, throwing money at everybody. But um, it does mean, I guess, thinking about money from the perspective of compassion for yourself and, and for other people. And I think that's what gets lost a lot with people who are um, activists or who are very outwardly compassionate is sometimes they forget to be compassionate to themselves and to take care of themselves. And that was one thing I was, I was very surprised to, to learn as I you know, studied Buddhism more was there is a, there is a fair amount of emphasis on, on taking care of yourself, your health and your, your well-being. And, and that's important because if you're not strong and healthy, it's very hard to be helpful to other people. Um, that is something that I always am sort of struggling with in my life, like <laughs> the ratio of, you know, quiet nights at home to uh, nights out drinking or how much time you're spending at the gym versus work. But, it, you know, it does get very practical at some point. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, that's I would say that's how it, it really sort of manifests in my life. Jerry, we're almost wrapped here. You've been awesome. Let's do some so money fill in the blanks. Sure. So don't overthink these 
I'd like to just get your initial take. Okay. If I won the lottery tomorrow, do you play the lottery ever? Like obviously when it's Powerball, maybe. That's that's what I do with all my money. All your money. <laughs> that was a dumb question. I'm, I would guess you do not ever gamble your money at, to any degree. Not, not for, my, I have family members who do it and I totally love it and it's fine. It's just, I just, it's not something I do. Yeah. Me too. I just don't have time to go buy a lottery ticket. The fill in this statement. If I did win the lottery tomorrow or any other big windfall of say a hundred million dollars, the first thing I would do is open a theater, open a theater, open a theater. Yeah. I would open like a a place for people to to put up plays and, and new musicals. How exciting. So what kinds of plays and musicals would you like to have? Anything? Would you do like reprisals or? No, no. All new, only new stuff and only things that uh, are using the medium of theater um, to have like some kind of fun but thoughtful conversation with a live audience. What's the last greatest show you saw on the stage? The last thing I saw that I absolutely loved was I saw Dear Evan Hansen when it was off Broadway like a year, year ago. And I just, I just loved it. It's on Broadway now. I know it's the hot ticket after Hamilton. I think that's like the next big show, right? That everyone is trying to get and save up all their money to go see. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. The one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. Ooh, I don't know. So many things. Um, (laughs) The one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better uh, Amazon. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, that is factually correct. <laughs> I spend a lot of money on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> I really, I like having, um, tools that like things like, like a phone, like a nice phone headset or headphones. I like having a, a, a phone that, you know, tools that help me work with uh, less friction. I use fresh direct cause I like cooking at home and it's, I don't have time always to go grocery shopping and it, delivers groceries to my apartment in New mm-hmm. York. So that's, that's fine. That's, that's plenty. Yeah. I mean, convenience, right? You spend your money on convenient things, like s- things that save you time, which is like, you know, Amazon prime and food delivery. I'm um, b- being a fellow New Yorker. I think that's uh, a good uh, investment of your money. Time is time is money back in your yeah. pocket. Yeah, that's true. It's like I'm spending, for me, spending money is about spending money to leverage it into time because I, and not, not like extravagantly, but there are little places where you can spend a little bit of money and get back a lot of time. When I was growing up, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is? We don't need to spend as much of it as we're spending. You can live a lot more comfortably within your means than you think. Yes. All right. When I donate, I like to give to blank because? I like to give to places where I know my money is going as much as possible directly to the people that I'm hoping to help because it's a lot more leverage with your money than giving to organizations with high overhead. That's so true. Yeah. I mean, I kind of went through that recently when I was trying to figure out where to give most effectively because of all these hurricanes. You're right. Like, I mean, listen, America, Red Cross is great, but they are a machine, right? And they do a lot of fun. They're like the number one fundraiser among all other sort of disaster relief, maybe even the, you know, the best fundraiser of all time. You know, I wonder about the impact. Um, and, and maybe if, you, if you're specifically interested in like feeding people during this time of crisis or helping children during time of crisis, there are probably better, more effective ways to give that goes directly. So we actually end up giving to the food bank of, of uh, the Houston 
uh, uh, food bank because for one dollar you can buy three meals, and they say that on their. Yeah. Oh, I like seeing that. Like, I think that's a really smart way for nonprofits to get their message across. Like, how is my dollar actually going to be spent? Show me. And and there's nothing like the Red Cross, I think, does fill an important function, but it is a it is a it is a machine. And I I was like, well, what like local? (laughs) My question was, what's going to happen? Like when all of the Red Cross stuff ends, you know, that that initial emergency flush of, of food and and resources and you're looking like six months down the road and there's still people, you know, whether elderly or in poverty or just because they lost their home, who are still needing to be fed. And so we actually, yeah, we, we gave to the same food bank um, just because, you know, they're going to be there, you know, when everyone else is, because they're local. So they're going to be there still feeding people when everything else has moved on. Yeah. And that's the thing to keep. To get to the Red Cross, but that was just for me, my own personal. Preference. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. And, I'm Jerry Colber. I'm so money because <laughs> I'm Jerry Colber and I'm so money because I made a TV show about money with Farnoosh Tarabi. Aww. And hopefully another one in the future coming to a screen near you. <laughs> that would be awesome. That Jerry, be thank, <laughs> thanks so much, Jerry. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule and for being a friend and being so uh, insightful for all of our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to my friend Jerry Colbert for joining us on So Money and giving us all that behind the scenes of the television world. If you'd like to learn more about Jerry and his company, please visit thisisatomic.com. All this info back at somoneypodcast.com. If you'd like to download the transcript or check out the audio again, download the audio, go to somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, you can send me your question for the Friday episodes and maybe even suggest being a co-host as I love to connect with now listeners on those Friday episodes to share the mic and sift through all of our letters, all of our emails from listeners about money, career, negotiating, and everything in between. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope your day is so money.